Welcome to Box Tickers, the stories behind the stats. In a pre-pandemic world when, well, you know, we're often wheeled out to tick a box or speak for an entire community, we wondered what the post-pandemic world will look like for us. We're Rachel and Sarah from Art With Heart, an arts company based in not-so-sunny Salford, Greater Manchester. We make people-led creative projects to instigate social change. We've been bringing cultural activities to people across the UK since 2010. But this year, we're making our first podcast under the COVID-19 pandemic lockdown. We're both recording from our houses and our artists have too. So don't be expecting BBC studio quality because you're not going to find it here. The Equality Act turns 10 this year. So we've gone back to the list of protected characteristics and asked people it impacts after prolonged austerity, tension, protest and pandemic, is protection enough? You know, when will we see action? When will our value be more than the tick box we're in? As two queer, neurodivergent women, we wanted to take our experience of prejudice, our unequal treatment in society and turn it into action, into change. Since 2016, we've been visiting high schools across Greater Manchester with our Equalities Workshop. Every February for LGBTQ Plus History Month, we head out to talk with thousands of teenagers about current inequality, prejudice, oppression, and how we feel we could individually and collectively move towards a more truly equal society. And when we're fighting for change, it's important that we don't just pick one cause, because you know, when we're fighting for equality, we're fighting for all people. And actually, most fights are connected. We're human. We're, we're more than one thing. We're intersectional. We're part of more than just one group. In this episode, which we're calling Beyond the Box, we have Connor talking about disability, Nasima on faith and Jackie on sexuality. So to kick us off, here's Connor A. Hello, my name is Connor A, and welcome to this Mindfulness Light Meditation. Mindfulness Light, four extra letters, but a lot less time-consuming, and 50% less likely to cause you to try yoga. This is a five-minute meditation for a better life for other people, and it will deal with the topic of able-bodied privilege. Now, I realise many of you have had to attend a number of privilege awareness courses recently, but just think, five minutes now could save you from a Wednesday role-playing scenarios with Kevin from Accounts. At these courses, you may have come across the word intersectional. I like to think of myself as a three-box intersectional, bisexual, disabled and an immigrant. The old Spanish red leather sofa doesn't prepare you to get those three words in the right order. But I am also white, male and middle class. I realise the accent can be misleading, but the fact I'm recording a guided meditation should have tipped you off to my class. And apart from those closest to me, my disability can seem invisible, but that's only because I only tend to let you see me when I'm at my best. And unless I'm flirting with your brother Kevin, you might not automatically know my sexuality isn't heterosexuality. And for those reasons, I can often move through life with many of the privileges afforded to straight white men. And having acquired my disability later in life, I've become acutely aware of just how much privilege I had and still have. Seriously, lads, you're on easy street. 
I have an invisible disability. I have a chronic health condition called fibromyalgia. The main symptoms are life-altering levels of pain and fatigue. It's a sort of disability where nobody's doing a sponsored fun run for you. And unlike my one-legged friend, no taxi driver has ever told me I could be Paralympian. Now, in these strange times of the global pandemic, with many of us trying to find a new sense of normal, I think there is much that the able-bodied community can learn from the disabled community. In the case of invisible disabilities, there are a number of real-world and contemplative paradoxes that when coupled with meditation, I find can be more mind-altering than an ayahuasca retreat. They were popularised in the 1970s cult classic Zen and the Art of the Reasonable Adjustment. I'd like to share some with you now. These are the ways of the reasonable adjustment. If life is pain and fibromyalgia is pain and fatigue, in a game of top trumps, who wins? Me or the Buddha on the topic of fatigue? If you're too awake to sleep and too asleep to function, what can you do? Which came first? The ergonomic office chair or the reasonable adjustment in the workplace? If you only tend to see me when I'm at my best, but you only rarely see me, how bad are things really? If your doctor is in a forest and he shouts out your diagnosis and there's no one there to hear it, are you still ill? These are the ways of the reasonable adjustment. Now for the final meditation, which is simply called Three Breaths for a Better Life for Other People. And in this meditation, I will ask you to close your eyes if you're comfortable. And for three breaths, I will prompt you to think of a word. And I'd like you to simply say the word loudly in your head for the length of a breath. Let's begin. On the first breath, I would like you to think of the word learn. Learn. On the second breath, I would like you to think of the word listen. Listen. On the third and final breath, I would like you to think of the word reflect. Reflect. You can open your eyes. Congratulations. You've done a meditation. For this meditation to fully benefit your lives and more importantly the lives of other people, it is advised you do it at least three times a day. Don't worry about what order you put the words in. The universe will just be grateful you've taken the time to be lightly mindful. Thank you. And remember, always create a life worth fighting for. I love Connor's piece. Like, it genuinely made me laugh out loud. But also, it's it has made me think, like, the, the listen... Listen, learn, reflect, I think is so important. And I think it's something that we're not very good at, particularly as adults. Whether it's a British thing or just as adults, we think or we like to think we know everything. And I, we're not very good at saying, I didn't know that. Or I was wrong in that. I will have a think about it. Or, you know, I'll readjust my thinking. We're not, we're not good at that. And I think, yeah, if we if we can all become a bit better in every sense of life, then, yeah, it's, it's so important. Three little words, and they're so true. Also, there's a lot of truth in uh, 
Kevin from accounts. I've I've met a lot of Kevins in accounts. <laughs> if there's any Kevins in accounts listening, we see you. We see you, Kevin. Um, yeah, I I loved I loved Connor's piece, and actually, it really struck a personal chord with me. As you know, um, over the past few years, I've had uh, serious changes to my health. Three years ago, I the right hand side of my face just stopped working one day. I was eating popcorn at the time not eating it since. And um, I was told it was Bell's palsy. I'd never heard of that. I was told it was going to be temporary. It wasn't. I was in the unlucky 15%. And I've been left with a number of long-term chronic health conditions. And over the past few years, you know, as me and Sarah have been working together, we've been putting funding applications in and those dreaded tip boxes uh, land in front of us. And I've never quite known whether to mark it or not. And I found actually the more official the form, the less likely I am to mark it. And I think that's, for me, it's a feeling of being an imposter actually. And I think that comes from the fact that, you know, when we think about disability, we think about disabilities that you can see, disabilities that, and, and people I think who've been, you know, unfairly boxed in, uh, you know, by society from birth. So, I often feel like, you know, I, I'm, I'm always comparing my disability to, to others and wondering whether or not I should be there. Disability itself is a massive spectrum and it's in so many, visible in so many different ways, but I actually think all disability has such a lack of visibility in society, in the media, and, and we kind of yeah. portray disabled people in such extremes, like you're a you know you're paralyzed or you're a paralympian it's one or the other and also that the, the only kind of we think about more generally that disability equals wheelchair or blue badges you know but also you know we'll still fill the accessible toilet full of chairs so that you know anyone who actually uses a wheelchair cannot no, no one can use it anyway i think we just we're not aware of so much within disability and so I think it must be hard when you, you know, there's a change and you feel like, actually, is that is that me? Because I feel like it is. I, you know, I can see how difficult that would be if you come later in life and to I th- that. I think it's the, the invisibility. I loved when Connor said, if you only ever see me at my best, but you rarely see me, how bad are things? And I could completely relate to that. You know, when the first time that I you know, felt confident enough to stand up or brave enough to stand up and and speak in front of a room full of people. Everyone was coming up to me afterwards saying, oh, good on you. You know, you're out here doing it. Um, My personal favourite, honestly, mate, you can hardly tell. And, you know, that sense of like being so brave, but actually they were seeing, I suppose, the best version of myself at that time because actually I'd had to cancel, you know, seven other commitments just to be there and make it for that eighth. And I yeah. think, and they think that's a nice thing, like, oh, you're so brave. <laughs> well done. Always with a head tilt. That, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice little head tilt. Like they think that that's okay, and they actually think that that is a nice thing to say. Yeah. But it's super condescending, and it strips away all of the, the struggle, the effort that it's come to, that you've gone through to get there that day. Yeah, and I think to even just be in the room, let, let alone like speak in front of people. Yeah, and and it changes that then changes the way like it changes the way that people see you and the way that you see yourself 
you know, you, you go from being yeah. one version of yourself, for me, spontaneous and silly, always showing up to being someone who's more cautious and sensible and others might see me as inconsistent. And that can be really hard. I think for me, I only hope like over the past six months, lockdowns forced us to walk in the shoes of those that are disabled and have chronic health conditionings. We've, you know, we've all had to shield, we've all had to spend more time than we'd like inside, you know, and, and I think that I hope that people can see how easy it is to adapt things and actually how little effort we've made. This pandemic has exposed so much, so much. And yeah, I, I agree. I hope that this has changed something. I think the more we hear from, the more there is that visibility and the more we hear from people with a range of different disabilities, the more we really learn and the more we can, yeah, as Connor said, listen, learn and reflect. Completely. And thanks, Connor. Just listening to you has made me feel a little bit less alone and a little bit more like I might just belong in that box. Next up, we have Nasima on faith, which is listed in the Equality Act 2010 as religion or belief. Hello, my name is Nasima. I am a South Asian hijabi Muslim woman who works in the arts. Just to clarify, hijabi means I cover my hair. I'm lucky enough to have turned my passion for creativity into a whole career and do things I love like travel and work with communities. It's been no walk in the park to get to where I am now, so I wanted to share some of my personal experiences with you in the hope that post-pandemic, as we begin rebuilding the art sector, we can think about perspectives that aren't often in the mainstream. Opinions of minorities that should be at the forefront of a wider conversation when we create an umbrella for us all to coexist under. Now, I'm not here to tick a box today or tomorrow or even the day after. I'm not speaking for anyone but myself because I am beyond a tick box and frankly, I'm sick and tired of ticking them. This is a bit ridiculous and for other artists of colour who may be listening, unfortunately, you can probably relate, but you know there can't be two of us, right? I mean two brown, Muslim, hijabi female artists in the same city. Wrong! We'd both be billionaires if we were given a tenner for every time each of us was mistaken for the other. Me and a fellow poet look nothing alike, but both happen to be brown Muslim hijabi poets. We are constantly getting mistaken for the other and have had people contact us getting our names wrong and referring to the other's work. We only realised when we mentioned it in conversation once and were astounded by the number of times it had actually happened. Did I mention we look nothing alike? I used to work for a well-known and established arts venue in the north and I was given the first aid room when I asked for somewhere to pray. The building, by the way, was genuinely massive and for the first few weeks or so of using the space, I'd get anxiety having thoughts of someone bursting through the doors with a huge emergency with blood and gore everywhere, all whilst I was mid-prayer. As terrifying as that sounds, it didn't happen, but what did ensue was the security guard gripping my arm soon after as I was heading back to my office, having used the room to pray. I had my work ID around my neck and was mortified at the whole situation of being mistreated at work by a colleague who was there to supposedly make me feel safe. 
After some back and forth with HR and management, the next space they offered me was a storage room the size of a cupboard. I could barely move in that room and the rectangular shape of it meant I could only pray in an incorrect direction. For context, Muslims pray towards the Qibla, the direction of the Kaaba, the sacred building situated in Mecca. Instead of stating the obvious, I wanted to leave you with an action plan. Let's call it the instruction manual to make the arts a better place, not only for Nasima but for everyone. Although remember, I'm not speaking for everyone. Number one, stop converting your cupboards. Jokes aside, prayer spaces, quiet rooms or multi-faith rooms should be a given across the cultural sector. It shouldn't be a first aid room or a cupboard ever. Number two, Culture for the culture, the training programme. Cultural organisations and anyone who works in the arts should go to interactive cultural training. No pun intended there, but this should be created by people who are otherised because of their faith or background. So things like praying in the workplace are normalised and the hijab is normalised. Number three, question time. Ignorance can breed hate and dialogue is the most important tool we have Everyone has the right to practice their chosen faith. No one should feel criminalised or mistreated anywhere for this. If there's stuff you don't understand, just ask. Number four, say my name. We should make the effort to do really simple and obvious things like get people's names right. It's not hard. It's okay not being able to pronounce it at first, but keep trying. Number five, Bane Busters. Put terms like BAME in the bin for goodness sake. Why are all people of colour grouped into one big term when our experiences differ so vastly and are nuanced? I want equality and I want it with equity. My biggest fear is that the diversity of our arts ecology will slowly disappear, leaving a minority-shaped gap and those people are the ones that we need to hear from right now. Their stories are the most exciting and they're the ones we haven't heard from before. Arts and culture should reflect society, but currently neither do, which put both under threat. It's time for action. It's our collective responsibility to make the arts world better for each other and those who are to come after us. Thank you, Nasima. 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 It's really not that hard, is it? And also, if you're emailing Nasima about an opportunity, her email has a name in it, so there's the clue. Just FYI for any of those people who are still mixing Nasima up with any other performance artist with a hijab. Also, with the names, like the amount of schools oh. I have worked here, and oh honestly, my gosh, yeah. like they just that they'll they'll the the young person will repeat their name in like correctly pronounced and the amount of teachers supply teachers usually who i have seen and heard say oh yeah yeah that's what i meant no that's not what you meant except that you didn't say it correctly and just say it properly like that is just a basic respect basic respect but also you're doing the register for an equalities workshop and you're not even willing to pronounce the name of your students correctly it's crazy yeah um don't worry I always make a point of it oh I know (laughs) we're committed um I think yeah I think the stuff that Nasima talks about like for me I find it so frustrating that equality and access are, are just pretty much always an afterthought and I think it's rarely embedded into the plans 
know, from an organisation at the start. And I think actually that has a lot to say about who's around the table when those decisions have been made. And actually, if you yeah. get it right from the start, if you make space for a prayer room, if you make space for a quiet space for, you know, people who have um, autism or Asperger's or, or, you know, mental health problems and need a quiet space in your building, then you might just find that people start to feel like they belong in your building. The first time Nasima told me that story, I think the way she told it w- was so telling because she told it so calmly and so matter-of-factly to me and I just kept saying, the, I just kept saying, what? What? Yeah. What? And she told it in a way that was like, well, yeah, of course that's happened because if, you know, it happens so often, you are expecting of it and that... I mean, that should not be. The arts particularly, you know, is there to reflect the world that we live in and to instigate something really within you. And actually, if we just have arts organisations that only reflect one type of people, then we're not really reflecting society, are we? Yeah, and also I love Nasima's idea of a cultural workshop for people working in culture. Culture for the cultural, for the cultural institutions. Yeah, I have to say best name for a workshop the instant the instruction manual to make the arts a better place not only for Nasima but for everyone <laughs> yeah I love it I love it um but I'm, I'm gonna put it out there I think we need to commission that workshop and I would love to hear from any other cultural organizations or institutions that would like to get on board with that because it needs to happen not just in cultural organizations but I think it says a lot when the Arndale shopping center in Manchester has a dedicated prayer room space and only a couple of our cultural institutions in the city centre do. Thanks, Nasima. We look forward to the instruction manual to make the arts a better place, not only for Nasima but for everyone. Workshop coming soon. Next up, here's Jackie on sexuality, or as it's listed in the Equality Act 2010, sexual orientation. When I came out as bisexual, it felt like throwing myself to the lions. My gay friends felt betrayed. My straight family cringed. By coming out, you're trading having an easy life with being authentic. Here's the scoop. Coming out as self-care. Self-care as compassion that kicks butts as well as running you a bath. Makes you feel real. And not everyone gets the chance. My first girlfriend said that it goes like this. When Jackie is going out with a girl, she's gay. When she's going out with a boy, she's straight. Hmm. So when I'm single, I don't exist? Or when meds mean I can't fancy anyone. Or if I'm in a threesome with two humans who have transgressed that simplification of gender. I'm always bisexual. I could never tell. You'll always be straight to me. That isn't a compliment. I'm trying to tell. The presumption that someone is gay or straight is called by erasure. That is thinking in binaries. And when we do that, we capture only the slitheriest slither of human experience. Men, women, gay, straight, right, wrong, no. When we do that, we touch the very ends of the spectrum. We pinprick a sphere, and then we believe the words are real and reality are fiction. 
I have pan friends now who don't fall for the lies that bi equals two equals binary equals we are incapable of falling in love with non-binary people. When I say I am attracted loads to non-binary folk and that the word bisexual hits different for me because I've fought for it. So it's written through me like Blackpool Rock. Please don't say, but bi equals two equals... There's a human in front of you. My first boyfriend asked why we have pride so loud, so camp, so in your face. Well, pride exists because shame. Try it yourself. Something you're ashamed of that you shouldn't be. Write it a certificate. Look, society really works for some people. Make sense of their work. Adverse-induced shame can be relieved and that feels good like sugar and slot machines. Those it doesn't work for threaten the whole damn thing. No one likes to think of themselves as a bully. So to sleep at night, people use a trick of our forefathers. We tell stories with heroines who look like us, where the others are monsters. Tell new stories. Read stories where you're not like the hero. Hold monster balls with jelly and alchemy, where shame goes out dressed up and comes home, lipstick smeared as pride. Our lives could be fascinating. A modern day emperor's new clothes. I'm not ashamed to be naked, to be honest, and by. And let us speak. It feels like course when the responsibility of proof lies at our feet and your certainty is read as confusion and random insults. Promiscuous, unfaithful. Oh, don't fall in love with one. Cheers. Gays use bisexual as a stepping stone. That's where you're heading, you're gay. No. It's hard to come out, so people put the feelers out. It's, it's easier to be rejected for being something you're not. It tells us it's hazardous out there. When a mugger asks you if you're on the way to the opera and you are, what do you say? <laughs> I'm 39 now and my straight family welcome my partners. My mum once teared up at Christmas at the freedom that I've got. Don't begrudge you it one bit. I found LGBTQ friends who used their own oppression as a way into mine. It helped my ex-girlfriend come out as asexual. And sometimes, when we get it just right, I can remember being 13, when I knew nothing about being bi other than the wholesome delight of being real. Thank you, Jackie. Uh, as a fellow bisexual, or now thinking more about the term pansexual, actually, um, and what kind of that means. And I think that's okay, because I, I suppose I'm in control of how I define myself, and that's really important. But like Jackie was saying, it takes so long to feel like it's okay to say you're bi, because so many people think that you know if you're bi you can't be monogamous or you can't you know be in a relationship you can't do these things or that it's just a stepping stone it's just a phase like it takes so much to hold on to that one word that it 
kind of difficult to think about other words. And I always, oh, and I, and I still have it now. When I was 18, I was given a magnet by my friends. Well, it was given to me by my friend, although it was given to her from her ex-girlfriend, which is a magnet that says, buy now, gay later. And so this magnet was this magical thing that had been passed down from lesbian to lesbian who came out as bi, used it as a stepping stone. And then, you know, when they finally decided, you know, came to the realisation that they were a lesbian, that they would pass it on to another. And I've kept that since I was 18. So I've had that a lot. I've had that like almost half my life. And it feels like we're so, you know, they think about 45% of the LGBTQ plus community identifies as bisexual or pansexual. And yet there's so much unacceptance from, I feel, from, you know, my straight and my gay counterparts. Like when I, even my relationship that I've been in now for 10 years, in that relationship and in every relationship with a woman that I've had has been uh, someone has said to them, or multiple people have said to them, Oh, you know that she's bi, right? Oh, completely. All of my <laughs> friends who are bisexual have have had that said about them, but also so many queer women have said to me, "Oh, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't enter into a relationship with a bisexual. I can never date a bisexual." Any of the bisexuals that I've dated have actually been people who know themselves and their sexuality more than anybody that I know. And actually, I think that any insecurity says more about you than them. And I think it's coming from your own personal place. I feel like I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of who I am. But I have shame because other people give it to me. And that's really hard. That's really hard to, like, juggle. Feeling, like, confident with yourself and accepting yourself, but knowing that other people don't is really hard. And I think one of the things that I find saddest, actually, growing up is that a number of my male identifying friends really suppress that part of themselves and actually they've entered into relationships and they've said to me please don't tell my partner about that part of my past they've not wanted to tell colleagues you know if they end up in a uh, heterosexual relationship they've really wanted to forget that part of their past because of the fear and the stigma but even saying like a past like it's not past my past relationships don't matter a dot to what my sexuality is if I had never been in a relationship with anyone ever still bisexual if I'm in a relationship with one person still bisexual if I'm in you know like there's such there's such a difficult thing around like how we identify sexuality and there's so many people that say to me like I just don't get it like you don't have to get it you just have to appreciate the fact that I exist. But it's bonkers, though, because they're often the people who completely understand that heterosexuality exists. They understand that homosexuality exists, but they can't understand anything in the middle of that, and I find that bonkers. And I think it's we're in a really problematic place when, we, when as a society, we define people's sexuality on the relationship that they're in. I think that it's, it's yeah. two very different things. And, like, within that... You know, in terms of like coming out, I'm coming out all of the time. Being in a being a, a woman in a relationship with a woman, I'm I'm I'm. People are making the assumption that I'm gay all the time, and so I'm constantly having to say, "By the way, not gay." I think the most interesting coming out <laughs> coming out story that I have is when I 
came out to my neighbours. So my neighbours next door are Muslim and so they wanted to come out to me uh, to tell me that they were Muslim and I had to come out to them to say, well, I live next door with my partner. And so we sat down in their living room, you know, welcome welcome to being our neighbours, you know, knocked on. And um, they we sat around the table and I said, oh, you know, I live, I live next door with my partner. And you just, you're never sure. And particularly when you live next door to someone, you think, oh, this is, this is my life. This could go sideways. And you just don't know what, what the response is going to be. And she seemed really nervous. And she then said, oh, um, you know, we're, we're Muslim. And her four-year-old son said to me you know we're muslim that means we don't celebrate christmas and he said it in such a nervous way as if like i was gonna somehow kick off because he doesn't celebrate christmas like oh and i suddenly realized that like we're coming out all the time in different ways to different people and i think particularly when we look at like sexuality and faith they're pipped against each other so much like you can't be one or you can't be the other you can't be this you can't be that there's people telling you what you can and can't be all the time like it's tough i think you know sometimes labels are useful they help us you know identify ourselves they help us collect uh, you know be part of a community and collect shared experiences with people but also sometimes those boxes can be really restrictive or people can assume that you're in a box that you're not I think you know it's tiring fighting for yourself it's tiring fighting biphobia all the time you know and I say I'm thinking about language you know is pansexual actually more appropriate for me I feel like actually yeah maybe it is and I think that like my straight friend said to me recently you know you shouldn't have to fight biphobia because that's that's my that's my people's problem. I'm like, yeah, but if you and if you and the gays could get together and just send a memo out to each other, like that it's actually your problem to fight biphobia, we'd have it solved dead quick. <laughs> just need a newsletter. I'm on it now. Oh, Typing yeah. away. I'm writing the newsletter. <laughs> get it, mate. Fighting for yourself and your own corner of society is so tiring and it takes so much inner strength. So what could you do to support others in the fight for equality? Tune in next time for episode two, A New Normal, where we'll be talking parenthood, neurodiversity and gender identity.